The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. We're pretty funny animals, us humans. Some people see problems and do things about them, and others do weird things. Take supermarket plastic bags. The problem with plastic bags is that plastic lasts for generations, degrades into microplastics, and poisons the food chain and soil. So the answer we found to that problem? We banned thin plastic bags and made an absolute shit ton more thicker plastic bags that have all the same problems as the thin ones, except more so. Good work, humans. And then, as I'm sure you've all noticed, you get your shopping home and every product has five layers of rarely recyclable plastic. Well, one person who looked at that problem of plastic and packaging and did something wildly clever and cool is on the show today. In 2012, Brianne West, a scientist, became a kitchen chemist when she had a eureka moment in the shower that selling liquid soap to people in a liquid environment was probably bonkers. This led her to create hard soaps and paper and compostable packaging, with shampoo bars, soaps and conditioners becoming fan favourites. Through a couple of wildly successful crowdfunds, product development, opening up large retail channels in the US and Australia, and further afield, Brienne and Ethique have created millions of fans and stopped millions of plastic bottles going to landfill. It's a great pleasure to have someone whose mission and execution are an inspiration to me join the show today to talk the insight, making it happen, and what's next. Brian West, founder of Athe, joins us now. Kia ora, good morning. Hello. Hey, so first up, um, I was doing a little bit of looking around, and I saw your first company was a pet detective agency. <laughs> tell, tell me about that, just to go completely sideways. I like that you call it a company, because I'm not sure it was. <laughs> uh, it was me and a poster. I think maybe two or three posters, uh, hung up around McAndrew Bay in Dunedin saying, you know, if your pet's lost, I'll go find it. And you know what? I found a cat. I did. And I didn't even get paid for it. <laughs> well, all kinds of tax considerations if you're hiring a eight-year-old. Well, yeah. as, as an eight-year-old, I, I guess I didn't consider that. I really just wanted a business card. <laughs> My dad had a business card. He was cool. Therefore, I, if I had a business card, I would be cool. That's cool. So, so you know, obviously from an early age and, and entrepreneurial spirit and interest talk talk me through kind of like your path into science and and, and you had a, some kind of cosmetic company as well before that hadn't you so path into science and study uh and and then the idea that got you into ethic oh i've always assumed that i would go on and be a scientist i've wanted to be everything from a vet to an oceanographer to a 
I don't know everything in between, to be honest. So I've always knew that I would do something sciencey because I love it. I was forever making stuff in the kitchen at home. Like when I was again eight, nine, I was rescuing a truck. I once my parents came home once, and I was trying to dissect a dead sparrow on the chopping board. Uh, it had died of natural causes. I had not murdered it. Uh, so I was always of that that inclination. Um, so I went to university and probably on day one I saw that all my friends had gone home from their lectures and then gone straight to their part-time jobs and I thought, nah, not doing that. I'm not working for someone else. I hate it. I'd had a couple of part-time jobs. So I knew what taking orders was like and it's not my thing. So I decided to start a cake decorating company um, and I had that for about 15 minutes before I realised I actually can't decorate cakes. <laughs> my mother is a phenomenal cake decorator. I am not. Shame. But... My second company, which I don't know how many companies we're in now, but uh, the first real one, I guess we should say, was a bog-standard cosmetics company. So it was liquids, shampoos, and moisturizers, and blah, 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 those sorts of things. Uh, it went reasonably well, actually. I sold online and fannied around in my flat. It taught me a whole lot of stuff, mainly bad things. You know, don't ignore the IRD. Don't sort of ignore financials in general. Make sure you charge enough to cover the cost of your products. Really sort of things that most people have sorted before they start a business, but I'm a slow learner. I don't know. They're pretty useful things to learn, They're very useful, but most people do sort those out. At a small scale before you get yourself into heaps of trouble. (laughs) I got myself into a bit. (laughs) Um, I started a second company, which was a confectionery company, uh, and about six to eight months in, I got a bit bored with both because they didn't really have a point. They were selling product for the sake of it. And it didn't inspire me, didn't inspire joy, to use that phrase. So I thought, right, I want to do something that has genuine environmental impact. What is a problem I can solve? I have this cosmetic chemistry knowledge. I'm at I'm university, so I can, I've got access to some of the best minds in New Zealand. Yeah, I'm going to try and create the world's most sustainable cosmetics company. That's so cool, because cosmetics is like... A wild business, isn't it? Like the actual costs, <laughs> like once you get into it, you're like, wow, so that cost of the $60 bottle of moisturizer is the same as the cost of the $4 bottle of moisturizer. And the only difference really is the packaging and the efficacy. Like, you know, once you've all got, you know, natural ingredients, it's all the same kind of thing. <laughs> the amount of the, the, the chemicals in there that are meant to do good things are probably in such low amounts that the dilutionary effect of the moisturiser means that they have no point at all. And people pay all this money for all this packaging. Oh, it's mental. It really is. It's the, it's the craziest industry ever. It's hugely wasteful and it's it's quite predatory, I suppose, obviously in, in terms of trying to make people feel bad about themselves to buy more stuff. But you're right, a $60 moisturiser... Unless it has something like retinol or vitamin C in it, it's not really going to do anything more than a $4 moisturiser. And in fact, for a lot of people, natural cosmetics aren't great for them because they tend to be more allergenic. So if you're particularly sensitive, you should actually use natural cosmetics with a little bit of caution just because they, you know, you could have a more of a, an allergic reaction to them. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's an interesting industry. And even if you've got retinol in there, the rest of the hard costs of what you've got in there are so nothing. You know, like if your average tub of, you know, 100 grams of moisturiser has got about 10 cents of actual raw materials in it, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And it's mainly because of the water. Uh, you, let's take a moisturiser. So if it's a face cream, it's probably about 60% water. Um, a body lotion is probably 80. Conditioner is 95. I mean, you're paying for water in a plastic bottle, for Christ's sake. Yeah, and then you pay, they make sure it's little plastic bottles so they get replaced often. 
And then the cost lines are all just the packaging they have to make, which is packaging like, is really expensive. Which is really expensive, particularly particularly good compostable packaging, and even more beautiful. And so you look at this industry and you go, well, it's entirely wasteful, and the actual raw ingredients don't cost much. Let's concentrate the raw ingredients and 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 get that in people's hands. Exactly. Why on earth do we put ninety five percent water in something? Or make something out of ninety five percent water, package it in a bottle, ship it around the world where it weighs more because of all the water, and then use that product in a bathroom full of water. <laughs> the f- well, I could tell you why. Yeah, it's because it's marketing. It's yeah. cheaper to produce. It's honestly the cost of producing a one of our solid shampoo bars versus a bottle of shampoo is incredibly different. So, so was it an actual in the shower eureka moment, looking at the shampoo and going? What's all this water doing in here? It wasn't. It wasn't. I'm really clumsy. I dropped the bottle of shampoo and I thought, why? Why is this happening? Why? Would I just. I, I think about the world in a, in a strange way. I think I've got weird brain things going on because I often look at things and think, why on earth do we do it that way? And then someone will explain because that's what we do. And I think, well, it's a stupid answer. It's a really stupid answer. Why do we? Why? Just why? I guess I never grew out of that irritating three year old phase. Um. So it was a combination of things. I knew from the previous business what a typical formulation looked like. I knew how horrific plastic was sort of before it was mainstream news. It was still certainly of concern to many people. Um, and I thought, right, well, here is a easy solution. It, it, I always feel a little bit like it's a frivolous industry. But in saying that, every single person, hopefully, in New Zealand uses some version of personal care, whether it be soap or shampoo or toothpaste or whatever. So you are having a reasonable impact. And we've we've saved about 4.3 million plastic bottles so far. Yeah, that's, that's not bad. That's amazing. Mm. And, and it's not just like the from, – from not bringing them into the supply chain in the first place is, is a real uh, success. Yeah, well, it's not just the not having to have them recycled because they won't be recycled statistically anyway. It's the not having them made. Mm. which is the heaviest carbon footprint aspect of them, of course. So, yeah, taking that step back and going, okay, so we go and we buy a bottle of shampoo or conditioner and it's 95% water and then we bring it home, we have it in the shower and we drop it down the sink and we've just lost $8 of shampoo or whatever. How do you go from that really great insight to then going, okay, I'm going to make a a hard soap bar because I, I, I wonder if the reason that hard soap bars went around is because it's probably reasonably challenging to make them so that they reliably lather up or reliably do things. Like, what what were the challenges there? I think the major reason is because it's more expensive to produce them and because they're smaller on the shelf, so the consumer thinks, nah, too expensive. So if you look at one of our bars, it is 110 grams versus a 350ml bottle, but those that 110-gram bar is worth three of those 350-gram 350 ml bottles so you know it's a bit of a hard sell and I suspect money is more than more than anything rather than it being difficult because actually making the first shampoo back feels like three four hundred years ago um was tough to get started but once I had a, a basic principle then it was really just iterative improvements um I looked at what a liquid shampoo was like and once you removed all the water what was left and how it was formulated to what it did um the difficulty is of producing a solid bar so you can you can make a oh, making a, a mushy paste is quite easy but then making it structurally sound and last well in the shower in a wet environment or a steamy environment is the tough bit but having enough payoff so it took a lot of a lot of testing i mean we we're still forever creating products now and that it takes a while to to get it from concept which is usually a scribble written on my wall in the office to a fully fledged product 
it must be something to go, how do we make a water-soluble product, not too water-soluble, <laughs> in a watery <laughs> yeah. environment? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a little harder than, well, it sounds hard and it is hard. Yeah, because yeah, payoff is an important word. And with that insight that the actual material inside the packaging is often not the most expensive thing, does that mean you can create a really amazing value proposition as well by having kind of the, you know, a much longer lasting um, ingredient inside this packaging? Yes and no. Uh, we don't do it in the cheapest way you could do it. So we are definitely not the cheapest shampoo bar out there. But I think there's probably an important consideration, which is most shampoo bars out there are soap. And I know people say, oh, hard bar soap. It's not. And it's a pedantic thing to get, well, pedantic about. But soap's really bad for your hair. So soap is a really high pH. Your, your hair has naturally an acidic pH. And if you use something with an alkali or high pH on your hair, it makes your hair rough and dull and all your hair colour drops out. So if you're spending money on your hair colour, the last thing you want to do is use a solid bar. But our products are actually shampoo. So imagine a bottle of, I don't know, a really good quality natural shampoo with all the water boiled off. So it's an important distinction. But we also choose to use only sustainable ingredients and only palm-free, for example. So palm oil is a horrific industry that we won't have any part of, even though it is the most efficient oil. Currently, the way it's being produced is not at all environmentally friendly. So we use coconut oil or uh, rice bran derivatives or olive oil. But these are all, on average, 6 to 18 times more expensive. So our bars are much more expensive for us to make, hence they're a little bit more expensive to buy. However, in saying that, longest sentence in the world... If you look on a per wash use, they are the same cost per use as a supermarket shampoo. Without having to go through maybe three or four plastic bottles in the time period that you've got this one hard bar in your shower. Or murdering orangutans. Okay, that's probably unnecessarily yeah, inflammatory. You, you, you subcontract the murder of the <laughs> orangutan. <laughs> it's not you personally. It's... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well. Um, and so... Right, you've cracked the idea, which is like a really interesting um, challenge to solve. But how do you change people's behaviour? So most people are just so used to buying shampoo. How did you get it in people's hands and get them to use it? And what were the responses from people? Uh, interesting question. So we always approach a market. So we're now in 14 different countries. So I'd like to think that we're getting better at it. We always approach a market with the low-hanging fruit, which obviously is what everybody says to do, which is the eco people. So people who will buy a product for its eco-credentials first and foremost. So you go and tackle them. And that is easy because we are without question, and I will say this arrogantly, I suppose, the most sustainable cosmetics company in the world. So zero waste, zero palm, everything else people want to avoid as much as, as sustainable as you can possibly be, right? And we're also living wage and we donate to charity, 20% to charity, blah, blah, blah. So telling that story and getting getting people who care for that side of things is an easy tell. And then you have them by, I guess, by the emotions. But then because they love it so much and because the products are so good, that's when the quality comes in, the efficacy comes in, and they tell their friends who are much less likely to buy a product because of its eco-credentials. And they buy it because it's good. So that's how you spread with word of mouth. We don't do a lot of advertising. We don't have the money to. It's really expensive. So we have spread primarily through word of mouth and social media, which is essentially an extended version of word of mouth. And how did you first get it going? So when you were, you know, in the in the kitchen, making it up yourself, working out how to get the compostable packaging going, what were your first wins to get it on shelf? Because now, I mean, the scale of it, I don't know how many people, unless they've followed the journey by being in the crowdfund or, or followed the media, People may not know the scale that it is currently overseas, but how did you get those first stores? 
first stores were little independents, actually, wonderful independents whom we still have now, um, who were our supporters from Day Dot, who were uh, basically taught us how to retail because it's a bit more complicated than you might think. I'm sure you would know. Um, yeah, they just approached us because, again, they like the story. We got out there on Facebook. So Facebook was a lot easier back then. It was much less advertise and give me all the money you have in the world type thing. Uh, it was it was easier to tell your story back then without spending heaps on it. Uh, I did build a website, which was horrific. But there you go, it worked, sort of. Um, and, yeah, I, 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 actually I hired a friend who did all the packing and the wrapping and the order processing, and, and she sold it to a lot of her friends at preschool. And slowly but surely over two years, I guess it built a bit of a following in Christchurch. But really the thing that kicked it off was absolutely the first crowdfunding round. So we did 200 thousand in 10 days which I was pretty stoked with because I didn't even know we were going to do a dollar in 10 days uh, but that was what got us in the news got us in the NBR got us in stuff it got us all over Facebook that was really what made people realize we were around and was that fans like people who were using the product and loved it or people who loved the mission no nope, the vast majority of people who turned up to our launch party for the crowdfunding event I'd never even met of met or heard of before and they'd never bought a product it was all about the mission and that is why Atika is successful now it's because of the mission we are so genuinely obsessed with what we are trying to do probably irritating as well actually how come you went down the crowdfunding route had you gone down a typical kind of friends and family or bank thing and what kind of response did you get from people when you were first talking about this idea I'm really funny about money. I think it's because my parents are English and they won't talk about money either. So the idea of asking friends and family wanted to make me curl up and die. So the idea of crowdfunding, it had just been legalised, equity crowdfunding. And I love the idea of being able to bring people who have supported you all the way along to hopefully either whatever it be, dividends or a successful sale or whatever it is in the end, that hopefully one day we pay off a whole bunch of people's mortgages who may or may not be able to in the future off their own steam, right? It's a really cool thought. So people who back you from the very beginning when no one else did and you reward them in the end. That's, I love that idea because most people can't afford to invest in the typical way you invest. Uh, that was one reason. Um, another reason was um, Anna from Pledgery is really convincing. She made it seem <laughs> really doable. Isn't she great? Yeah, she's brilliant. Um, and, and the third was because it's also another way of getting your name out there. So it was a version of not free necessarily, but interesting marketing. Had you had had you knocked on the door of venture capital and the like? No, we were turning over about 60 grand at that point. They would have laughed at us. Wow. In fact, no, I don't even think they would have opened the door to laugh at us. And was it like, were there, were there fears of like, you know, because there's so much openness you have to go out there with all of your finances and your your plan and your credibility and, and show everyone everything that every other business owner is like quietly going, everything's great. Well, <laughs> God knows what's happening in the background. Everything's great, but I can't pay the wages. Um, I believe so. I find it hard to remember. I tend to forget the bad things. Um, it was very, I think we did it in about three weeks. So I'd highly recommend that if anyone ever does it, they give themselves a bit longer to plan. And I think, again, poor Anna, she had to, hold my hand through the whole thing uh, but look it was made up for all because instantaneously these emails started to roll in saying so and so has just given you $37,000 is there a better email than that? It's amazing Yeah, there was definitely fear but it was, it was very quickly driven away by the, the excitement and off the back of that you'd made a plan, a really clear plan to execute on and you got the, the money through and a you know, really big raise and it got the word out there and you created these advocates. 
how did you how did you go from there with executing the plan? Because plans are plans are hard. They're easy to make, but they're hard to follow through exactly as you want. And then you've got a whole lot of maybe somewhat sophisticated, somewhat not. Um, and I'm not using sophisticated. Uh, uh, maybe somewhat experienced investi- uh, in- investors and some maybe not so experienced investors who may not know companies are, are like a complete mess. <laughs> How does it go executing that plan? Well, we do have a range of investors. Some of them are, are incredibly experienced and actually really useful. And to be fair, even those that aren't are incredibly useful. Um, we didn't do any of the plan, I don't think. Yeah. Um, no, that's not true. We hired an operations manager who's our current COO and he really showed us how to turn it into a business, I suppose. That sounds a bit ridiculous. But what we were doing back then was mainly D2C, and it wasn't really that successful. New Zealand's a bit small, and to focus entirely on D2C in New Zealand, you're going to grow slowly. So he introduced us to the distribution world, and he uh, encouraged us to go into America, and that was when we launched on Amazon through a distributor there. So whilst we didn't do a lot of the plan, we did a lot better than the plan. And then back into crowdfunding again yeah actually i should say in regards to the plan but a week after that first initial crowdfunding rounds because we used to be called sorbet um i don't know why i named it there i just thought it was a cool word at the time and really when you're in your kitchen thinking oh i think of names i like this one you don't think about international trademarks so a week after our trademark our, um, crowdfunding round and we'd said you know we're going to eventually go into australia and america and all these countries around the world i looked for trademarks for these places which we we're going to spend some of that crowdfunding money on couldn't get them anywhere so i had to go out to our newly crowned shareholders and say sorry guys I've made a really big <laughs> cock up I'm going to have to change the whole name of the company but don't worry I totally have it nailed that was a bit stressful so yeah, teak came about in about a week anyway um, second crowdfunding round yeah I mean that was pretty cool that was uh, half a million in 90 minutes I think so it was a bit faster and at, by that stage were you talking to other investors and stuff as well yes so we had planned to do the equity crowdfunding raise for a million we're going to do the whole lot. But um, the Ice House, which, do you know the Ice House up here in Auckland? Yeah. So we're an awesome bunch of guys, um, guys and girls. And they approached me to pitch at their um, angel investment showcase, which happens every year and is a huge, I think about 700 to 1,000 investors come around and, and 10 companies pitch, usually tech-based. But they invited us along. Um, so I pitched to them and we, we gave them half of the raise, if that makes sense. So we offered them 500 and, and we still did uh, the 500 on Pledge Me to make everybody happy. That was honestly, standing up on that stage was the scariest 4.3 minutes of my life. In front of thousands of people yeah. who, are, who are all there to judge. Not allowed notes. To judge your quality of offer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how does that fit into the, the typical investment environment? Because, um, you, you know, I've spoken to a few founders uh, in um, areas uh, like um, health and beauty and they've said, Oh well, ninety percent of the investment audience are old white guys who don't really understand grooming or you know anything that isn't kind of like on a spreadsheet, and this this kind of stuff's been a disaster. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and especially if you're a young woman, you're a scientist, and you're in the in a, a thing that's like completely new. Yeah, we are very mission led. I think that's probably important distinction. So people who approach us and we approach are also mission led and we tend to approach those VCs or PE firms or be approached by by those who want to make a genuine difference. Some of them some of them say they want to make a difference and don't really, but some of them do. So that helps because from what I've seen those people are pretty 
pretty genuine. Um, they understand the market. They're obviously quite a lot. They, they know a lot more than us about certain aspects of of um, business around the world. Um, I haven't had too many problems actually, but I have certainly heard that the old VC world is old white guy who doesn't necessarily know anything about the industry that they're investing in. And look, the whole the whole investment area is not my favourite aspect because you have to be so careful about who you're getting in bed with, which is why we like crowdfunding and why we work with angel investors and why we try and... We, we've mostly funded ourselves through cash flow. We are profitable and certainly from a company growing as fast as we are, that's unusual. We don't have any debt. Um, we try... I, this this whole weird Silicon Valley idea of raising millions and millions of dollars and then frittering it away 15 minutes later and then having a huge, enormous valuation and raising more money on that is so stupid and so overinflated and so ridiculous and all this fake money that's flying around. I'm so not into it mm. because you are beholden to your uh, investors and I couldn't think of anything worse. I told you I don't like working for people. You're working for people when you have investors. I feel like I'm working for my shareholders and I like that because I wanted them and they're good people and they genuinely care. We had our AGM on Monday. Best day ever. I think I've gone on a rant. But you're, the you're point great. is yeah. <laughs> I don't really love the VC model, but there are good ones out there. Yeah, when it's artificial growth, like, you know, well, we said we'd get this growth by this time, so let's spend all that money we raised on Facebook ads. And you're like, well, that doesn't seem wildly sustainable totally. for the future. Why not? Like, Yeah, the acquisition new- cost is more than their lifetime customer cost. I mean, that's stupid yeah, and, and really common. And you've gone down some really interesting kind of traditional routes as well as the um, the, the, the the really kind of innovative approaches as well. So through Amazon uh, and getting direct to customer there, but also kind of like in the big pharmacy chains around the world as well. That must be exciting when you sign up, you know, when you fought so hard for every individual direct to consumer bar and then you get into a chain that's got 400 doors for you. Yeah. <laughs> um. I remember an email probably about a year ago now, one of the well, the largest pharmacy chain in the world with over 15,000 pharmacies across Europe and Asia approached us. Didn't do any work that day, just sort of danced around the office and laughed, really. Uh, no, so these guys these are awesome. It's very exciting, but they're hard to work with. They're a lot harder than your individual customer, obviously, because there's so many things you've got to do to fit into these stores. You've got to, there's contracts and exclusivity and marketing support. So you've got to approach it carefully. But, I mean, our most recent launch was into 850 stores in Holland and Barrett in the UK. And we sold it in 48 hours. So it's, if you get it right, it's pretty phenomenal. Amazon is, is I think, our second biggest market on its own. Well, America, because we're also in Target in, Austra- uh, in America. Uh, but the UK has now quickly surpassed that. So you, it's, you've got to really be careful about finding the right retail chain. Because some of them just want you on their shelves to say they've got a sustainable brand. And how do you tell the story through them in a way that it sells out in 48 it's hours? It's harder. It is really hard. We have really good PR teams in every market we're in. We also have great digital marketing who are based in New Zealand. And they tell the story as much as possible from an online and press perspective. But in store, it is hard, as, especially as our bars are smaller than a bottle. So you can tell even less than you can on a shampoo bar, on a shampoo bottle. But we have good displays. We we take a lot of time to educate and give the staff samples because the staff are your uh, advocates in stores, so it's important they know and love your product. Uh, it's really the best you can do is external support, staff support, and um, get real buy-in from the retailer. There's that great expression in products, which is your packaging sells the product the first time and your product sells it the second. 
so I guess having a great product helps for the rebuying. <laughs> but then, but then it's that story and that that first shelf appeal that's the first go, isn't it? Yeah, and that's where reviews come in. So we do lots of trials because look, people are like, well, that ain't going to work because it's a bar, therefore it must be soap, therefore it must be shit. I hope I'm allowed to swear. Yeah, I've yeah, already done it several times. Go for it. Good. Uh, so getting over that is really difficult. So we do lots of sampling. So we have our cute little heart-shaped minis. Some people say they look like bums. I have a lot of men saying, I don't want to use a heart-shaped bar. And I'm thinking, do you not have a heart? Anyway. <laughs> you certainly have a bum. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was I saying? Yeah, so lots of sampling is important because, again, you're right, the product sells the product, funnily enough. Um, our bars look pretty cool on shelf, so we get a lot of curious people. And if you go and pick up a, a £10, $20 trial kit, it's not going to break the bank. And then people get to try four bars, think, oh, okay, that is the bee's knees, and then go and buy a, real, a full one. What are your – you've obviously had to kind of like um, upskill in a whole lot of areas along the way. What are your kind of like favourite bits of the role? Uh, because there's, there's now how many um, kind of product lines do you have? And so you're involved in – kind of creating, dreaming up ideas, creating ideas, launching them into markets and, um, and yeah, dealing with customers. And probably it's, we're a small team of nine in Christchurch. Uh, obviously, manufacturing is, is significantly more, but the head office in Christchurch is uh, nine, so everyone does many, many things. And I have an amazing supportive team and I could do nothing without it, without them. Um, I kind of do a hodgepodge of stuff, and my favourite bits are concepting products. So I come up with some random idea and shower on a plane. Oddly, I seem to be weirdly creative on a plane. Maybe it's the forced inactivity. I don't know. I reckon it's the secret fear. You're always like your brain's going on a plane because you're so busy going like I'm not in the middle tube, the kilometre off the ground. Everything's <laughs> fine. Everything's fine. Yeah, it ain't that secret with me. I used to be paralytic with fear on planes. I used to cry and embarrass everybody. Yeah. I cry less now. Thankfully, but <laughs> uh, I do get creative on a plane. So I will come up with some weird concept. I will usually email my mother, who works as our little R and D squirrel, and she'll go and make it in the lab for us in Christchurch. Um, and then, if it works, great. It usually isn't that simple. Let's face it; it's usually quite a few changes. And then we um, send it up to our factory in Auckland, and they figure out how to make it at scale because that is not a linear process. Uh, so I enjoy that, but I love working with the team on regardless what it is really, whether it's figuring out a solution to a challenge, not a problem. Um, I love working with international retailers on the launch, uh, sort of day-to-day stuff I don't handle at all, but the planning the launch and executing that, that's always exciting because it's a new market. I do all the PR and the, the fronting for the company, obviously. I like public speaking. I like spreading the word about why environmental businesses are important. I like lots of things. Yeah. Tell me about the manufacturing, which is an interesting thing. Like, how do you go and um, control the quality and you're making them in a series of factories around New Zealand? And is that an important thing to you? Yeah, it is. I had a dream. I had a dream many, many years ago that we would have little pockets of industry, little pockets of factories all around regions in New Zealand because obviously jobs are leading the regions at it and it's like if they're everywhere in the world and I don't – it's sad. It's really sad. I saw that as this as a way to try and help that, uh, which is why we worked with a factory in Blenheim. Um, but in reality – Having millions of factories around the place is never going to work. You can't get the scale, you can't get the volume. You'd be hideously environmentally inefficient to start with. So this is kind of a compromise. So we have two in Auckland and one in Blenheim. And it's it's really nice. Not only do you have risk redundancy, so if something happened to one, you can knock on to the other. But also you do get to work with a whole bunch of different teams. Uh, in Blenheim, it's really cool. 
it's, it's, it's obviously it's a little bit seasonal, but I think at the height it was 15 people employed there that wouldn't ordinarily be. It's just uh, it's a really nice little initiative. And do you do your own factories or are they contract partners? No, we used to. No, we used to, we built a factory in Christchurch, uh, 800 square metres, I think. Um, it was it was very exciting. We moved in in March and we started to plan to move out in December. And it, yeah, we'd outgrown it. It was uh, supposed to last us five years. That's a good problem to have. Honestly, I can't count the number of times people tell me that a day. It's very irritating. Oh, that's a good problem yeah. to have. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. And what, what's so talk us through where the scale of the business is now. Like, um, you know, what what have you gone to to what have you got to so far? Well, I think the biggest example of that is two years ago, I stood up on stage on the Ice Angels event, as I told you, and I said, we've saved 200,000 bottles. And I was pretty stoked with that at the time. Now, we have saved 4.3 million. So that goes to show you how different it is. And each, it's important to remember that each bar is equivalent to between one to five bottles, depending on the product. So a shampoo bar is three, a conditioner bar is five. Um, so we have to we have to work out what we sold and what period and, and figure it out through horrible maths. But uh, we're in 14 countries. We are in 2,500 retailers with another 2,000 by the end of this financial year. We will be in another six countries by the end of this financial year. Um, yeah. How have those people in the crowdfund gone so far, the people who are in the first lot? <laughs> They're, um, they were very happy at the end of the AGM, yes. It's fantastic. <laughs> I, I heard a rumour that the, that your company was one of the fastest growing things that had ever gone through the Ice House. Yes, we were told also that we were one of the only ones they've invested in that's actually made their projections. Wow. Which is sad, I suppose, but also great for us. So, yay. Ah. What did people along the way tell you you couldn't do it? Constantly. Oh, my favourite story, and I don't know if I should tell this, but she doesn't work there anymore, but one of our current retailers. No, I'm ruining my story. Okay. I once approached a retailer uh, back in, ooh, I don't know, 2015, so pre, pre-crowdfund, and we looked terrible, horrifically bad. We were also called Sorbet, so like just ugh, so not retail ready. And I said, hey, would you like to sell these bars? We'll, we'll let you if you want to. And she emailed back very nicely and said, um, good luck building a market for this kind of product. I don't think it will sell. And I was pretty crushed because I didn't have any resilience back then. So I lay in bed for probably half an hour and just thought, what's the point? Nobody cares. <sighs> yeah, self-pity. Uh, but we are now that company's uh, third fastest selling brand. So that makes me feel pretty good. And I'm not at all pity about it. <laughs> how, how do you build that resilience to, to, to keep going when people say no? Uh, it just comes. You either have it or you don't. Um, a lot of people talk about entrepreneurs like this weird mythical breed of people who just are amazing and do these amazing things but it's not true at all I think the difference with an entrepreneur is that they're simply that little bit more resilient for whatever reason it is so they're just that more persistent uh, I mean we've been told no for hundreds of millions of things I get told no all the time I go and do them anyway and annoy everybody around me I think that's just that's all there is to it is you just you just eventually build it and if you don't you won't succeed do you get asked to give people advice about how to do things like that? I do, and I'm a little bit reluctant about it because I don't know everything. I mean, the reason I – the the joy or the, the advantage of being CEO or spokesperson or whatever is I get all the credit, and it's not really fair because I would not be here without a team at all. My team is phenomenal. Um, all I had was an idea, 
right? And, and they've helped me execute it. So when people ask me for advice, I'm a little bit nervous because what if I give them shitty advice? An idea that you formulated, proved, um, built. Yeah, yeah, but I didn't do it. I didn't do it <laughs> yeah, in a vacuum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you, you don't do these things. Even it's, it's, it's your extended family. It's everything. You know, you don't do these things on your own. We have this weird, you know, Elon Musk is a good example. Everyone worships the ground he walks on. And I, I mean, to be fair, I'm a big fan too. But I mean, he doesn't do it on his own. His team must be amazing. Yeah, and apparently... His COO is like, wow, girl crush. She's amazing. And apparently they, you know, all of the people in all of the jobs work kind of like three people's work, each person. They will so. sleep under the desk. And, yeah, it sounds like my version of hell. It takes a big, takes a lot of team, takes a lot of team. And are there things that like um, would have been helpful to, because this is a, like, you know, um, you, you know, an extraordinarily fast growth journey to be one of the only companies in one of our premier um, uh, investment communities to have actually hit its targets and, and be one of the fastest growing, like, that, that's an extraordinary fast growth growth journey. What kind of things did, do you kind of wish you'd learned earlier? Or are there any kind of like... Um, so many things. Weirdly, yeah. I was thinking about this last night, actually. Yeah. All the things I would do differently if I started it again now. Um, good people. So there is this weird arrogance that comes along with starting a company and you feel like, oh, I know best. I know how to market. I know what we should be developing next. And it's hard to let that go. Uh, and I've definitely got better at that over the last six months. So it's hard to let people in and let people do a job. But once you do and you realise, oh, they didn't, they didn't balls that up, uh, they did a great job. And then you start to let go of that a little bit more. So uh, realising that you are not the be-all and end-all, it's very important. And it's very difficult for a lot of business people. But making sure you hire good people. Because people wear masks of good people when in fact they are bad people. In whatever form they are bad people in. It's very rambly. But... um. What else? Um, ask for advice. You don't look like a you don't look like a doofus if you if you don't know something. Um, I used to be frightened of asking questions in meetings because people didn't take me seriously for a long time because I am a younger female. Uh, but now, if you ask questions, who really cares what they think? Right? Being underestimated is not a bad thing. And also, don't ignore your financials. Those probably be my top three. Oh no, another one would be with with my number one, which was you know hire good people. Also be careful who it is you listen to. So I, I've had lots of advice from lots of people and lots of people keep coming out of the woodwork and saying, hey, Brianne, I'd love to I'd love to form an advisory board or I'd love to be on your advisory board or whatever. Uh, these people often want to ride on your coattails and be a success alongside you rather than actually give you something to help you be a success or their experiences are not relevant to you at all, but they think that they are. Um, I've, we've had a few situations where we've had people who have been detrimental to the business but have been difficult to extricate so just be very careful about who you get back and who you get in bed with and i guess that goes to the vc conversation as well because that's even harder to get out of how do you define success like having created such um a change in the amount of plastic going into the world and changed kind of a consumption model so there's a lot of people today who are buying things that are completely different than what they used to buy, which is one of the hardest things to do. I mean, you know this, I'm saying this for the listener. One of the hardest things to do for for marketing. Um, and that, that's quite extraordinary. Like, is that the success, you, you know, having reached that, what, what, what is your definition of success and what you're trying to do? Definition of success, would everything in a bottle in a supermarket be replaced into a bar form? So probably a bit to go, to be fair. But what is really cool is our successes inspired a whole bunch of other companies in New Zealand and Australia in particular. Um, 
that's great because we're not going to save the world on our own. I used to say, well, in fact, I still say that the goal is to put a bar in every shower, which is changing consumer behaviour. So instead of reaching for a bottle, they reach for a bar, right? But it's not necessarily going to be in a tech bar. And that's totally fine because we cannot do it on our own. We need to encourage other companies to do the same thing or do different things or the same thing in a different industry. So we want to inspire change both uh, through business and consumers. So my bar of success is quite high. It is the eradication of of single-use plastic. So I'm not sure that we'll accomplish that on our own, but hey, I think we're doing, we're getting there. New Zealanders use 50 million plastic bottles for shampoo, conditioner and body wash alone every year. I mean, 4.3. It's an okay start, but 50 million. 50 million by 2025, that's the goal. That's so cool. Well, thank you so much, Ramirez from Atik, for coming and sharing your story today. And yeah, if anyone would like to be part of it, get on the socials, follow them and try a bar. And give up the bottle. Give up the bottle. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you so much to Tina Tiller for producing. And thank you so much for listening and having us along. If you have uh, suggestions of people you think would be interesting to chat to on the Business is Boring program, please do hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Simon underscore Pound. I think I am anyway. Uh, if you are a fan and follower of the spinoff, make sure you check out the spinoff members, uh, a program where you're able to get behind and support and choose and shape the investigative journalism that the spin-off provides. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by the spin-off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.